This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. We're going to be speaking with this week's guest shortly. Before then, let's say hello to Danielle and Paul. It's good to have you back for this week's show. Danny, how was your holiday? Yeah, it was good, thank you. Um, wasn't particularly restful with the kids off for the summer holidays, but it was just nice to spend some time together as a family. So yeah, it was yeah. Good. I was going to say never a restful holiday when you got uh, youngsters in, in <laughs> no, tow um, as as well. Um, good. How's your week been, Paul, so far? Oh, I think I need a holiday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually um, had a little trip to Spain earlier this year, but it was for my niece's wedding, which I, I couldn't describe as restful. <laughs> Here we are coming to the end of, I suppose, holiday season for a lot of people. There's so much happening at the moment that it's difficult to know what we were going to focus our time on, um, given the time we have available before we meet our guest. Uh, of course, last Saturday was World Suicide Prevention Day. The Office for National Statistics have just published its most recent suicide statistics on Tuesday the 6th of September. I say recent, but we're still only recording statistics up until 2021. And of course, we're coming up to the start of Freshers' Week for most universities in England. Uh, Of course, we're going to be talking about that last point with today's guest very shortly. Danny, let's chat just briefly about uh, World Suicide Prevention Day. Uh, Now, you look after the Jordan Legacy social media channels and arguably do a much better job than than me at it, too. Um, Of course, this is a busy time for anyone involved in the suicide prevention sector with everyone tweeting and posting hashtag World Suicide Prevention Day or hashtag WSPD. Have there been any particular posts or tweets that have caught your eye this week? Uh, Yeah, there's been some really fantastic things that have been going on sort of in the lead up to um, World Suicide Prevention Day. But um, something that really stood out for me sort of this last week in terms of people really sort of trying to make a difference in this sector um, was also something I covered in our Spotlight on Hope social media post last week and um, there's been an amazing guy he's one of the founders of the foundation if you care share and uh, Matthew Smith and um, he lost his brother to suicide in 2005 um, and sort of last week in the le- in the week leading up to um, World Suicide Prevention Day he ran 289 miles in 11 days he finished his journey at 10 Downing Street last Wednesday and um, where he delivered a letter asking the government to and promote social uh, suicide prevention as part of the levelling up agenda. 
Um, so I was following sort of all his daily social media updates on his progress. Um, looked like it was a really difficult challenge, but I just thought it was a really inspirational guy. Gosh, it is. I mean, it's just, just quite amazing. Just what people are doing out there is fantastic. Uh, you know, and, and obviously this this is a, a, a big deal, really, to so many people, World Suicide Prevention Day, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. It's been going since 2003, um, so it's not even 20 years old, and I think we need to bear that in mind. You know, suicide is only just starting to be getting this kind of recognition. Um, and, and when I first came across it, I was living in Australia, so it truly is a world event. And it's interesting to see what's happening around the world. And online, of course, these days, you can follow everything that's happening around the world. Um, and, and suicide is a different issue in different countries, depending upon the culture, depending upon the history, depending upon the, 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 the methods that people have access to, you know, people in the States um, turning to guns and other countries having gun control and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting opportunity to learn. But then, yeah, in this country, in, in, um, in the UK, we see what everybody's up to. We see, you know, Manchester, the Greater Manchester Group with Adele Owen talking about the month of hope. So it's not just World Suicide Prevention Day, it's the month of hope. And um, and it's great to see uh, uh, posts, including about this show um, and the great work that uh, Jordan Legacy is doing. Yeah, it, it's, it's great to see so many people talking about this and recognising that it is more than just one one day, as you say. Many thanks, Paul and Danny. Um, we're going to take a short break for some music. And when we return, we're going to be speaking with Lee Fryatt of the Learn Network. He's also a retired former police officer for more than 30 years who lost his son, Daniel, to suicide in September 2018, shortly after he started university. Lee now works with breed families, parents and siblings seeking meaning from their loss by taking action to prevent future deaths by suicide. With inspirational guests from across the world. This is Yawa Radio. Welcome back. When someone is struggling with their mental health, it's often those who are closest to that person who are the last to know, especially when that person is living some distance away. At 2.45am, one day in September 2018, Lee Fryatt was woken by a knock on his front door. As an inspector with Hampshire Police Force, instinctively Lee knew that the news he was about to receive was not going to be good news. What he was told next changed the course of Lee's life forever. Aged just 19, his eldest son Daniel, who had just started his first term at Bath Spa University, had taken his own life. Lee, welcome to the show and before we talk about Daniel and how your life has changed since September 2018, I'd like to start by asking how you are. I'm, I'm conscious that later this month it'll be four years since that tragic day, and I know just how difficult these anniversaries can be. This December will be three years since we lost Jordan. How would you be spending this anniversary, and has the way you acknowledge this date changed each year, would you say? Um, good morning, Steve, and um, just thank you for um, allowing me to um, be part of, of your show and the fantastic journey that uh, is the Jordan legacy. Um, I think you're right. Uh, when I look back um, over the four years about, you know, how did we reflect and mark um, Daniel's death? I think if I'm perfectly honest, in the first couple of years, it was complete bewilderment, really. Um, I don't think anybody knows how they respond to um, 
the loss of the child, much less the loss of the child by suicide. So I think in the first year, I was I would just describe it as complete bewilderment. Um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to mark that mark that day. Uh, I know there were a lot of tears um, that day uh, and that first year. And then I think the other thing that Noah told me is actually the second year I found more difficult. I think um, in some ways when, when a, a little more time passes, it's sort of the reality sort of sets in more that that person's not coming back. And I think you're sort of more hit with the shock of it all in the beginning. And then, you know, things sort of start returning to some sort of normality but you just realize that that person's not there anymore and um yeah I think that's what's really hard about yeah was that certainly your experience Lee would you say yeah I think so and I think I think what um Danielle said is in that first year you're just in such a state of shock uh and you don't realize how long that state of shock really lasts and it's only as you start moving into the second year where you start really processing what's happened that I think the emotional, the real emotional impact of that loss um, starts to come to the fore. Um, but, you, you know, now in the, you know, this year and last year, what we do as a family is um, we go out, uh, we celebrate Daniel's life, we remember his life and all the things that, that we did um, we go to one of his favourite sort of like uh, restaurants and eat his food, which was always pizza and coke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we spend the day just uh, thinking about that and creating a space as well um, for Daniel's younger brothers and sisters to actually talk about it and how they're feeling about it all the time, just check in on that as well. Uh, and I just think whatever works for you as a family is is what you need to do really yeah and i think a really important part of the the, the healing process i know paul we we talk about you know look, looking for, for for hope just really interesting to hear lee say you know now you know celebrating daniel's life and also we talked in a, a previous show about um how funerals have changed over the years and, and it used to always be the focus on mourning the loss and increasingly it's celebrating the life especially when losing somebody young and also we had Sangeeta uh, on an earlier show talking about how, you know, she initially had an incredible sense of loss, but has increasingly um, thought more and more about the life that she had with her son. Lee, I was chatting with Danny and Paul before you joined us, and, and we were reflecting on the fact that World Suicide Prevention Day was last weekend, and also that this time of year is a time of great change for families. Um Children have been going back to school and facing lots of changes as they move from one year to another. And in a few days' time, it's the start of Freshers' Week at universities throughout most of the UK, with a number of Scottish universities having started their Freshers' Week on September the 12th. I can imagine that the start of Freshers' Week is potentially quite a challenging time for you in many ways. Yeah, you're right, Stephen. I mean, it is, that is a difficult time for me. Um, I'm always uh, filled with, you know, the memories of uh, my last memories of Daniel, really, when he was alive, which is, you know, driving him up to his university. We took him as up, took him up as a family. Uh, we were playing my George Ezra CD that he bought, just bought me for my birthday, much to his annoyance. Uh, and, um, you, you know, we 
we had the car packed with all of these things and it was it an exciting time uh for him i think when we talk about freshers week more generally i think you know there are hundreds of thousands of students there with a huge range of emotions there's that excitement there's that, that anticipation but i also think beyond that actually in that level there's a level of anxiety there's a level of of, of uncer- there's a level of uncertainty um for, for for lots of students um and um you know when i reflect on it you always reflect on could have would have should have uh and all i would say is that what i reflect on now is that um i'd wished i'd had a bit more of a longer conversation with dangle about how is he really feeling about going to university? What are his concerns? And actually just making sure that even though it was it was always there, but it was never never explicit, that if there was anything that bothered him any time, didn't matter when, just pick up the phone. Just pick up the phone. Um, in the introduction to today's show, I referred to the fact that when someone who is struggling with their mental health is living away from home. Often it's that person's family and loved ones who are the last to know. Lee, I understand that Daniel had disclosed that he had anxiety when he applied to attend Bath Spa University, but that when the university was alerted to the fact that there was some serious cause for concern, you as his parents were never informed. Would would you like to explain and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Daniel was always, um, yeah, happy-go-lucky um, youngster, um, always smiling, um, very caring, always looked out for his friends. He was fiercely loyal with his friends. He had a really close network, small network, but very close network of friends. Uh, and he was going to university to do um, conservation biology. He was really interested in biology, got very interested in animals and everything. Throughout his childhood, he always wanted to go to the zoos and various various things. That's what he wanted to do. Um, but in his teenage years, um, it's fair to say, you know, some issues started to emerge around um, anxiety and depression, um, particularly after his sort of like exams and stuff like that that started to emerge. And and Daniel was open with the university during his application, which was which was great. He he didn't need to be pushed into doing that. He he was open about it. And that's what we want students to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was listed as his emergency contact. Um, I, I assumed that if there was an emergency, I if there was a cause for concern about Daniel, that meant I'd I'd get a conversation, I'd get a phone call. Um and, and, and tragically I didn't. What happened was that fateful day when he was at university, um, a very, very close uh, friend of Daniel's who was at uh, a neighbouring university was was significantly worried about him. Um, they said that they were worried that he might actually um, harm himself. Um, so you see, put that with a predisclosure of anxiety uh, and me being the emergency contact, you'd think the university would pick up the phone and say, you know, this is what we've heard, but they didn't. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in preparing for today's show, I, I you know, have read a number of media articles about Daniel's suicide and, and in one BBC interview, 
in particular, you're quoted as saying that you believe that had you been told by the university that um, he was struggling and had reached out in the way you said that um, Daniel would would not have died that day. What I what I what I think uh, and I believe, and obviously people can always have a view that I would have had an opportunity as a parent to intervene, to have a conversation with Daniel, because at that moment in time, particularly when you're talking about younger students transitioning to university. I think it's important that there's an open dialogue if there are concerns, because it's not only about parents supporting their children while they're at university. It's also about parents then being able to have a conversation to add information to the universities that might actually enable them to make a better assessment about what's the level of risk at this moment in time for this young person and and how can we respond to that? Um, Because, you know, I know that I would have had a conversation with Daniel I know I would have had an opportunity to say to the university, okay, actually, this is serious. I'm quite concerned for Daniel. He shouldn't be left unsupervised. Uh, and we came up and we we come up with a, with a plan to keep him safe for that day. Um, uh, uh, and I, you know, in my heart, I believe that that could have happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is very much about you just being provided with that opportunity to to help, which which clearly clearly didn't happen. Lee, I'm sure there'll be parents listening to this show whose sons or daughters are starting or who are going back to university this month. And those parents, understandably, are going to assume, particularly with all the current media focus on well-being and mental health, that if their child flags up that they're struggling to cope, that the university will get in touch with them. What, what's your message to those parents? Well, I think my first message is um, don't assume that will happen. Uh, uh, the current landscape with um, universities around information um, sharing is is very um, fragmented. There's not a universal approach across our across the sector. There are some universities that have moved their policy uh, and um, have either student opt-ins or make it much clearer to students at registration when their information would be used. But they're still sadly in the minority. Um, so what I'd say to parents is first and foremost have that conversation with your child before they go sit them down have an honest conversation about how they're feeling about university and actually um, keep those lines of communications open and have a plan just have a plan about what your child will do to stay connected and have a conversation with you or indeed somebody else that they know will help them uh, if need be about who they'll reach out to the other thing i'd say is actually to the students themselves um, don't be afraid to ask for help there's this perception that university has to be amazing Uh, everything has to be perfect and actually we know that it's not always like that you know sometimes in university things will happen that you'll struggle with Things might happen where you fall out with roommates or you struggle with some of the coursework or anything else. But the, the, the key message is if you're struggling is don't keep that to yourself, but have a conversation. Um, and then I think the other message to parents is actually have a conversation with your university. Have a conversation with the university and be clear with them what would happen and what will happen if either you're concerned about your child while they're away or the university become concerned about your child while away. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think a couple of really interesting points I took away from that. And one consideration, of course, is, you know, that that typically within the age category uh, we're talking about here of young people going to university, you know, they're, they're fiercely independent at this age, aren't they? And, and you know, mum and mum and dad kind of just having that conversation and make, you know, it's OK, mum, OK, dad. You know, it's difficult. But it, as you say, it's a conversation that kind of need, needs to be had to re- reassure them. As parents, we just got to try and get past that little yeah. bit of resistance and have a little bit of conversation and perhaps be open, you know, with our own experiences. I think that helps. You know, I you know, I went to university later in life, but actually what was your own personal experience of university or whatever you did when you first, if you like, started to fly the nest? Because we've all got stories, I think, as adults that we've struggled with in our lives. But I think we're, I don't think we're always, I certainly speak for myself I don't think we're always necessarily open enough to share that with our children I was just thinking back to some of my experiences and and the different types of anxieties that different students had the different things that cause anxiety uh, but it wasn't really discussed in in those days these days I noticed that lots and more people say when they're applying for jobs they look at companies well-being policies I wonder how many people when applying for universities for courses look at the well-being policies um, look now, Daniel's story is, is sadly not an isolated incident when it comes to the suicide of young people whilst out of, away at university, and and there has been a number of similar cases reported in the media in recent times. Have you yourself come across other parents who have found themselves in the same position as you, who are equally as distraught and confused as to why they were not informed about their child's mental health problems by the university they were attending? I mean, absolutely. Uh, and that's the real tra- that's the real tragedy, because I think what initially happened to me, and I think this is, um, I just speak for myself, but I suspect it will resonate with lots of people. When you lose somebody by suicide, particularly a child, you think you're the only person in the world that's happened to. You feel so alone uh, and very isolated because people who are bereaved by suicide, we become members of this club that no one talks about. Uh, And it's only when you start actually talking about it, you suddenly give um, people who are similarly bereaved an opportunity to share their story. We're in a space at the moment where, you know, 80 to 100 student suicides in universities are happening on every year. Um, All of our stories are unique, but also there's some common themes and there's some common themes about quite often some of the flags were there the flags were missed or the flags weren't shared people kept the information to themselves uh, and parents more often than not were the last people to know and most of the time uh, were not told like previous attempted suicides that was kept from them weren't told that their children were expressing suicidal thoughts uh, and they only find out when it's too late and it's too late for them to help yeah, Lee, can I just say, um, and some universities um, I've heard do have an opt-in system, um, but but how is that balanced with confidentiality? Um, yes, Danny, I mean, you're right. Some universities have adopted an opt-in system. Uh, last count we did, it's about 30 out of 200 plus sort of like universities and collegiates um, that we've got in the UK. So they're still in the minority. Um when we talk about confidentiality, I think there's a lot of myths about what, what, what we're asking for here. And um, 
we need to be open about what we're saying here. So those in the counselling profession um, will talk about patient confidentiality. We're not asking or suggesting for one moment that actually the whole discussions around what are being discussed in clinical sessions are, are shared. No one's advocating for that at all. Also, we're not advocating that it has to be parents. And we're also not saying that choice is being taken away from students. What we're actually advocating is student agency about if things are become a problem, who do you want nominated as your contact that can help you? And it's up for the students to choose who that is. It could be their best friend. It could be their parents. It could be a loved one. As long as that person's in a position to help them. Um, secondly, what we're saying is we're not asking to know everything that's being discussed in a clinical setting. We're saying that parents or uh, third parties should be recognised as part of that protective triangle that can actually help keep people safe and that actually that's a three-way process between the university the contact and the student to now say okay we've got this issue how can we collectively now come together to help and the other important thing about that is by sharing that information with the contact that contact may very well have key information about that student that the university doesn't know uh, that can help them uh, better support the student as well and to Paul's point he's absolutely right I, I really welcome the day when students family and parents where they're considering their academic choices and the choices of university are not just looking at their academic progress and academic strength of, of a particular university in parallel and with the same level of importance they're looking at actually what's the well-being support uh, in that university what does that look like and, and everything you said there Lee resonates you know with me I'm not sure how why it resonate with other people listening but for instance when I did my counseling training we were always taught that duty of care overrides duty of confidentiality when somebody is a, in a situation where they might harm themselves or harm others so you know and that's taught to people on lifeline phones and Samaritans and so on so it's an accepted principle but I think from my experience I'd be interested in your view on this. A lot of organisations hide behind confidentiality. It's a defence mechanism. You know, they say, oh, we can't do anything because of GDPR. And, you know, some of these people don't even understand what GDPR is, but they'll say, oh, we can't do that because of GDPR. So, you know, it, you know, it, it's based on the fundamental human rights principle of informed consent. Yeah. So that's what data protection is all about. So if your son says, you know, it, it gives consent to be, to inform whoever he wants to inform. I mean, that's that's a basic principle, isn't it? And then, and then the duty of care overriding confidentiality when somebody's in danger. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. In my case, that was the response I got from the university as an explanation as to why I wasn't contacted. Yeah, our GDPR meant we couldn't. Uh, and like you, Paul, I, it, but, but, but a different experience. You know, I've been a I'd been in policing for thirty years, and I, I knew that wasn't right. Um, you're absolutely right. There's a lack of understanding and training across uh, university sectors around GDPR. So people instantly hide behind it. And we've worked uh, really hard with the ICO and the Information Commissioner. And she has put out uh, a blog for universities. And, and she's on public record is basically saying that, you, you, you know, and I paraphrase, but simply staff should just do whatever's necessary and proportionate to protect a life 
thank you, Lee. Let's let's take a break now, and we're going to listen to some music. And when we come back, I'd like to ask for your thoughts about the pressures young people are facing today, and why you believe so many are struggling. We're also going to talk about the work you're now doing and your campaign for a statutory duty of care to be introduced to all universities and the better sharing of information. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Yawa Radio and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. This week's inspirational book is from Ben Fogel and Marina Fogel. The book is up my life's journey to the top of Everest. In April 2018, season adventurer Ben Fogel and Olympic cyclist, gold medalist Victoria Pendleton, along with mountaineer Kenton Cool, took on the most exhausting challenge yet, climbing Everest for the British Red Cross to highlight the environmental challenges faced by mountainous regions. It would be a harrowing and exhilarating in equal measures as they walked the fine line between life and death, 8,000 metres above sea level. This is truly an inspirational book. Ben Fogel shares his fears, his anxieties, his determination, his persistence as he climbed Everest. And he leaves you with this thought. You don't need to climb Everest. You just need to climb your very own Everest. So this week's inspirational book of the week is Up, My Life's Journey to the Top of Everest, Ben and Marina Fogel. This This is is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Jordan Space. And today we're talking with Lee Fryatt, who, following the death of his 19-year-old son to suicide in 2018, has joined with a group of other like-minded people, all with personal experience of bereavement by suicide, to create the LEARN Network. Lee, we're going to talk more about the LEARN Network a little later. For the moment, though, I'd like to chat with you about your time serving as an inspector with Hampshire Constabulary, where your role involved responding to critical incidents, including a lot of experience in responding to people suffering with mental health conditions who are at the point of crisis in their life. The subject of mental health clearly wasn't new to you when Daniel was struggling with his own mental health crisis. What do you believe are some of the issues that are causing young people to lose hope and consider suicide as an option? Um, thanks, Steve. I mean, I think the first thing to say about about this is suicide is is, is really complex um, thing to understand. Um and the reasons how people reach that point uh, are very complicated. So I don't think there's a single answer, unfortunately. Um, I think my own view is, is when we look at young people growing up today, um, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure, academic pressure, um, for them to succeed. Uh, there's a huge level of their life that plays out on social media. There's a lot of pressure to, to conform to a certain type, a certain style that plays out on social media. It's really interesting. I, I, just this morning, I, I was someone shared an article on social media, actually, from a psychologist, Sana Asan, who, who said that, um, you know, I'm a psychologist. and I believe what we've been told about mental health is, is all, all wrong. And, and what, what Sana is, is, is kind of saying is we focus so much on mental health as, as the issue and the problem. Um, 
but it's a lot of societal issues around that very complex reasons that if we could change the environment to a large degree that people are growing up and and living in i'd like to come back you know particularly to the universities and, and we, we talked a little bit earlier um about your campaign for a statutory duty of care to be introduced to all universities and also how those universities should become much better at sharing information with a trusted adult can you tell us a little bit about your your work in that area yeah absolutely absolutely so we are launching a petition a statute for student safety uh it will be on the government's petition site which is uh www.petition.parliament.uk forward slash petitions and our particular petition is 622847 but if you just search for um legal duty care for students you'll find yeah, it and we'll make sure we, we include these links in uh the re recordings of the show uh, and everything as well lee thank you fundamentally um what i've also learned and uh through my journey is the perception that higher education universities have a duty of care to our students is is, is fundamentally wrong uh, the, the the current situation is is, is very vague uh, and unspecific uh, uh, to the point where it becomes unenforceable because we're just at a, we're just at the point where we talk about general duty a student at 17 uh, who's at college is afforded um, a duty of care, a duty of protection by um, the colleges in terms of how they're looked after and can be in a space where 10 weeks later, where they start university and become 18, that that duty, that statutory duty disappears. And what our campaign is about saying, yeah, that can't be right. OK, well, so we're talking about a parity of um, duty for both students and people that work in, work in universities. Uh, and what we think that will do, and we hope that will do, is also help universities clarify this debate about, well, what actually is their responsibility to the welfare for students once and for all? So then every university will be absolutely clear what their duty is. Parents will know what they can expect. Students will know what level of support they should anticipate when things go wrong. And we'll then get a consistency of approach across universities. And if thing go, things go wrong, then, then there's a framework and a mechanism to look at that, to learn lessons. And if there's some degree of accountability, then, that, then actually that ultimately can be, can be examined and looked at. And that's why we think a duty of care is so important, because it will provide clarity once and for all about what's the legal duty of universities when it comes to welfare. Lee, I'm interested, we, we always like to, uh, in these kind of discussions, uh, give people a sense of the scale of the problem. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes people think, you know, this is, is maybe a fringe issue or a niche issue or a minor issue. We, we've actually heard some stories recently, I've experienced this myself as well with a local university that had a suicide at the end of term and just sent all the students home with no information, no support, and all the parents were suddenly landed with this responsibility to start having discussions about suicide with no training or experience we had somebody who wanted to do a play which would in a university which would encourage people to talk about suicide and the university said it was inappropriate and that might be a risk to the students to have a play being put on talking about suicide and i know you've you must have come across some horrendous examples uh, in the work you've been doing so just give us a sense of the scale of the problem we're dealing with here well uh if you talk about scale, there's over two and a half million students at university now. It's, it's almost half of our young adult population go, go to university. Uh, now, universities will say, 
quite rightly, uh, that the number of suicides um, statistically in that population is small, uh, but it's still one too many. Every one is one too many. It's, it's, it's in the magnitude of 100 a year. But that's known suicides. What we don't know, actually, because the sector doesn't keep any figures on this, is actually how many attempts have there been? How many admissions to hospital mm-hmm. by university for self-harm have there been? We actually don't know. So what we have to do is we have to look at you know, what, what, you know, what does the evidence suggest? And the evidence suggests that you know, one in five students may be having suicidal ideation at university that for every suicide, there statistically may be as many as seven attempts on that from each individual. Uh, and so you start looking at the scale and start looking at the numbers. We're looking at a population of around potentially, you know, quarter of a million students at any one time that could be that could be vulnerable or, ha- or become vulnerable while they're, while they're studying at university. And when we talk about um, the scale of the problem, at one end, you've got some universities that understand this space, want to move in the right space and are investing heavily in student uh, welfare and prevention strategies. And you've got other universities that don't have any, Um, you know, and, and actually some academics argue still in this day of 2022, that their business is providing academic product. That's that's what the students go there for. Yeah. And it's the NHS's problem to solve. And therefore what happens is you get, you know, you get students who are struggling and we get examples, really, really horrific examples of students, rather than being supported, they have to then go through a process that says, well, we don't think you'll think you're fit to study anymore. So we're going to go through a fitness to study process and actually what we're going to do is end your studies and in somehow some universities think that is the way to support somebody who's struggling um lee we couldn't let you leave today without telling us about the work you now do alongside your campaigning uh, i understand uh, of course you work as a consultant with the wonderful organization led by dr sharon mcdonald Suicide Bereavement UK, who we know very well at the Jordan Legacy, and also involved with the the Learn Network, which I referred to earlier, which helps bereaved families, parents and siblings uh, seek to find some meaning from their loss by taking action to prevent future deaths by suicide. Uh, Tell us, if you will, about the the Learn Network. Uh, Yeah, gladly, Steve. I just need to uh, get a quick plug in for Sharon, though, just to say what a fantastic boss she is uh, and what (laughs) amazing work Suicide Bereavement UK do. Uh, I'd get told off if I didn't. Um, But uh, in terms of the Learn Network, yeah, I mean, that is a group of families. Learn stands for lived experience for action right now. You know, we're an action group. Uh, we've all got lived experience of losing loved ones to uh, suicide. But what we share is a frustration that actually our deaths and these tragedies are not being learned from from the sector. And so what you keep and from individual institutions. So what what happens is we keep seeing the same sorts of mistakes. And actually, a lot of these things are not huge pieces of money or investment to to fix so take one example how the way universities deal with students who are perhaps not meeting grades a 
okay, or how universities deal with sending out results. All right, there's far too many in our network. We've lost children because our results have been emailed to young students that have they been wrong and told the student they failed when they haven't, or is a completely administrative process done by email to say to a student, your grades aren't acceptable, so we're gonna to have to ask you to leave. You would never deal with um, somebody whose performance, if you like, at work wasn't up to scratch by email. You'd sit that person down, you'd have a conversation, you'd try and understand what the problems are. And the point is that far too many universities are still doing this, despite the fact that we're showing them what the risks are. And this costs nothing apart from human investment in time. It's just people who want to make a change. You know, we come together, we coalesce around our loss and, and out of that sense of loss has grown a sense of purpose. Uh, and that's and that's the learn that's the learn network. And you know, we're all collectively responsible for that for, for, for the um, for the development of that. Look, if people want to engage with the learn network, what, what's the, the website address for, for that one, Lee, that we can include? So it's going to be uh, www.thelearnnetwork.org.uk. Fantastic. No, it's brilliant work. Um, look, Lee, you know, we a lot of the work we do at the Jordan Legacy is, is about hope. Um, and, you know, we like to, to end on a, on a note of hope. And I think, you know, by, by engaging with the work that you're doing with the Learn Network, I think by certainly signing the petition, and we will highlight that on, on the recordings on the web page as well, you know, people can um, find some hope that the work that you're doing to get universities to change the way they support young people, you know, will hopefully give all parents some hope. And um, look, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank you so much, uh, for, for joining us on Jordan Space today and for sharing Daniel's story and about the incredible work you're doing in his memory. Um, I'm sure I can also speak on behalf of Danny and Paul, but I'm sure they'll say that now. And, you know, I say, obviously, our thoughts are going to be with you um, and Daniel's loved ones uh, later this month. But uh, thank you, Lee, for joining us. It's been great to have you on. Thank you. And thank you, Steve, for having me. Hi, this is Steve. Join me every day of the week from 7 through till 10 for Yawa Breakfast right here on Yawa Radio. Probably the best way to start your day. Make a day. Join me every day, 7 till 10, Yawa Breakfast right here on Yawa Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, well, Danny, uh, Paul, that was a fascinating conversation with Lee. And one of the most shocking things I took away from the points he made was the apparent lack of any responsibility many universities are taking when it comes to the welfare and well-being of their students. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like when Elaine Malcolm on a previous show was talking about police. I, I was thinking that some police forces are really way ahead of the game and some are just woefully behind. Same with universities, isn't it? That You've got some universities that are doing incredible work, great well-being policies, great support, and obviously Lee working with some of these universities and others, again, absolutely woeful. And, um, you know, it... it so many things I take from from what Lee was saying, but I, I kept thinking about, uh, you know, how can you get that transferable learning from one university to another? How can you raise the bar right across there? So it doesn't matter which university you're going to. But in the meantime, how can we encourage students and parents to think more about well-being policies uh, when they're choosing universities and choosing where they go? Maybe that's where the pressure could be brought to bear 
in terms of the demand for places at certain universities if they get their well-being policies right. I think it's a really important point about parents and students putting pressure on the universities. You know, Lee made the point that, uh, you know, these in universities, 200 of them um, so around the country work so independently and not as a, a collective. They're almost like individual businesses. Da- Danny, during Lee's interview, I was thinking a lot about Jordan and his time staying away at university. You know, we know he had a great time. He met many friends and had a good social life. But also we know there was a period where he really struggled with motivation when it came to completing his law degree. What what kind of things stood out for you um, that Lee mentioned today? Uh, yeah, sort of um, the same as for you, really, just going back to Jordan. I was thinking back to the day that we took him to university and, and how strange it felt just sort of leaving him there. And I think it's so understandably worrying for parents when the children are suddenly away from home and it's not as easy for parents to check in with them and, and make sure they're OK. Um, I think one of the things that start, stood out for me in terms of, of Lee's story is just how since Daniel's death, he's, he's left wondering whether he could have saved his son that day had the university contacted him Um, I just think it really reflects the importance of universities implementing an opt-in service that the student is struggling with a mental health crisis then parents or a trusted person can be contacted Um, and also that universities have support systems in place to help students struggling with their mental health Um, I think a bit of what I took from what Lisa is that students shouldn't be worried that universities might put an end to their studies if they admit they're struggling they should get the support that they need to be able to carry on with their studies and for the time at university to be a positive one yeah i absolutely agree you know it's an awful situation where where both the student and the parents are left wondering you know if, if there is an issue who who's going to kind of step in and, and provide the the support the, the whole thing about data privacy and ethics and so on is so important. You know, as we said in the interview, people hide behind it. Organisations hide behind this. We've got to stop that happening. And you and I have had conversations about the whole ethics thing, that if, if there's something, if some action can save a life, surely the ethical question is, why would we not do it? Absolutely agree. Um, it's not about processes and protocols. It's ultimately about saving lives, Paul. Totally agree with you. Well, that's it for another Jordan Space until our next show on the 29th of September. My thanks to Danny and Paul, as always, and of course, to our guest today, Lee Fryatt. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. And if you have comments or questions about the points discussed today, please find us on Twitter at Jordan Legacy UK or at the same address on Instagram. You can also visit our website and get in touch there at thejordanlegacy.com. I've been your host, Steve Phillip. Look after yourselves and those close to you. And we look forward to having you join us for our next show very soon. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.com. Co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel-good music. 
Yawa Radio is about well-being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.